The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. that makes up the meta-narrative of the whole Bible. Each sermon has spanned from Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. And the next three sermons that we're going to cover in that series are going to be on the covenants, the law, and the kingdom. As such, these are massive undertakings to study and to prepare. So as many of you know, I've been struggling, struggling a little bit with ear infection issues over the last couple of weeks. And this has limited my study time quite a bit. So... Being that the scope of those sermons is as large as the entire Bible, and the context concerns some of the more debated and challenging theological issues, I have opted to take a little bit extra time in preparing the final three sermons in this series before I preach them to you. I want to make sure they are just right before presenting them. So today's sermon is going to be a bit of a one-off. Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Today, we are going to consider what the Bible says about Reformation. I'm not talking today about the Protestant Reformation, but if you study and learn about what happened at the Protestant Reformation, it follows precisely what I'm going to be talking about today. This morning, we are talking about personal Reformation and how that results in corporate transformation. So let's start off by approaching the scripture with prayer. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, it is you that we praise, it is you that we come to worship, it is you that we come to adore, and it is you that we come to see today in the scripture. And we pray that this morning, you would be presenting yourself to us through the weakness and simplicity of my words. Lord, I recognize my limitations, and I recognize that I am incapable of giving anything of value without your help today. So, Father, I pray that this morning you would work mightily in the ears of each person, transforming them from just having physical ears but having spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So, God, I ask that this morning as we talk about reformation and transformation, that this would not just be a practice in vocabulary, but a practice in hearing from you and applying from you what we have learned. So God, transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The process of reformation simply means to reshape something so that it returns to its proper form. In 1674, a Dutch pastor named Jodocus von Lodenstein, did my best there, coined the Latin phrase Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. In English, that means the church reformed and always reforming. That is what we are called to do. Constantly be reforming to the image that Christ has set forth for the church. One of the more hilarious um, scenes in any movie that I have ever seen comes from one of the original uh, Peter Sellers' Pink Panther movies where he has snuck into a castle and put on a disguise, and he's a very 
bumbling inspector from the French government, and he puts on a fake nose so that this individual won't see him, and it's made of some kind of wax or rubber, and he puts on this fake nose and pretends to be a dentist, and he goes in and begins to operate on the bad guy. And as he does, he ends up giving some laughing gas to both himself and to the bad guy, so they're both just hilariously cracking up, and as they're doing it, his nose is melting off of his face, and it is literally about this long dangling, and the bad guy says, I think I'm hallucinating, your, your nose is falling off of your face. And so what he does is he takes his hand and he just smashes it back onto his face, and it just is this incredibly disgusting, horrendous looking flat nose smashed upon his face. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Reformation. What we are talking about when we talk about Reformation is being molded back into the image that Christ has set forth for what he intends the church to be. He demands that we serve him the way that he has commanded us to serve him. We do what we do because we want to look like Christ has set up the church to look. So we do what we do based upon what the scripture teaches us to do. Churches are always changing. Our church worship today does look different in some ways than church worship looked 300 years ago, or 900 years ago, or 1900 years ago. Trends and philosophies of ministry, they come and they go. And there are always individuals who try to incite change in one direction or another. But how can we know what change is good for the church and what change puts the church into peril? And what causes churches to fall into need for being reformed in the first place? What is it that moves us away from the shape that we are supposed to be that causes us to need to be reformed? As we read and study the text this morning, my hope is that we will see that your pursuit of Christ is of utmost importance and that revival is both personal and corporate and that we are called to be reformed and to be constantly always reforming. After Saul, David, and Solomon, you know the story, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. Ten tribes went up to the north and two stayed down in the south. Both kingdoms had a total of 19 kings. In the northern kingdom, a total of zero kings were ever commended as being good. But in the southern kingdom, there were five. Five that were considered to be good kings. Our text this morning chronicles the events of the very last good king of Judah. King Josiah by name. Particularly, we're going to see how God used Josiah, this surprising individual, to bring reformation and restoration of right worship to the people of Judah. But in order to understand the immensity of his work, we must first get a sense of what the kingdom was like before his reign, and we must see what Josiah's family had done, his fathers and grandfathers had done before him to make such a mess of Judah. First, we consider his grandfather, Manasseh. We see in Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 9, which you can follow along with here on the screen. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's a long reign as a king. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 
For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the, in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever." And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. Every last aspect of the tenure of Manasseh was wicked. He was on the throne and was pitted against God. He actually caused the nation to be worse than the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Egyptians and every other nation that the Lord had driven out. They were wicked. The nation followed him. It seems as though this king intentionally did everything in his power to enrage the king of heaven. The heart of Judah and the king is summed up in Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10. It said, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. They were proud. God was nothing to them but an afterthought. It doesn't take long for an individual or even an entire nation to be enticed by evil and to pursue it. Our nation, for example, idolizes sexual liberty and who would have thought, nobody I think, literally nobody thought 10 years ago that we would be where we are now. Our nation idolizes sexual liberty and it's amazing to see the amount of effort and energy that has been put into pursuit of that form of idolatry. Manasseh led his people to pursue their own forms of idolatry. They might have looked different, but that's what idolatry does. It draws the heart of the people away, and where there is already a leaning against God, it opens the floodgates for it to flow in. However, in his later life, we read that Manasseh actually realized his sin, he realized the error of his ways, and Manasseh actually repented before the Lord. However, although his heart was turned to the Lord, it was too little too late to influence the nation as they continued in their rebellion against God. When Manasseh died... Josiah's father, Ammon, became king. His reign is summed up in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 22 through 23, this way. It says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. So all the horrible things Manasseh had done were similar in the life of Ammon. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself, 
But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. Perhaps Ammon thought that he could do whatever he wanted and that he would just be able to late in life repent like his dad did. I'll just put it off and put it off and put it off and someday I'll just ask God for forgiveness. Maybe in the twilight of my life I'll become like my own father. But if only he knew that his life would be cut short. Do not delay repentance. Do not delay coming to the Lord for you have no idea how much time remains. Ammon served for two years and then he was killed by his own household servants. And it is into this world of sin and idolatry and cultural degradation that Josiah becomes king at the very young age of eight. Earlier, I brought forth two of the children of this church because they are eight years old. Now imagine if Kayla or Logan were to become president now. Honestly, if they run in 2020, I might vote for them. Um, But Josiah was thrust into a place of power and influence long before adulthood, long before his capabilities had grown. And you can read all about Josiah's reforms in 2 Kings chapter 22, as well as where we are today, but we're going to be sticking mostly here to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, because it offers us more details about the spiritual nature of the reforms of Josiah. I've outlined this passage using four main points. First, reformation begins with zeal. Second, Reformation must be based on the scripture. Third, reformation is the result of humility. And finally, we'll consider some results of reformation. First, reformation begins with zeal for the Lord. Look at the text with me. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali... In their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all of the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Zeal is a form of passion. Godly zeal is a form of holy enthusiasm about the Lord. Every single revival or reformation that has ever occurred within the people of God started with individuals who had a zeal for the Lord that burned hot in them like an unquenchable fire. This kind of zeal is evident in the life of Josiah. We see that he takes off from Jerusalem and goes on a tour for what probably was a matter of years, crushing every idol and every altar he could find. And even taking 
his own military to crush the life out of the priests that were worshiping at those places. Every single revival begins with passion for the glory of God. This kind of zeal that we see in Josiah, how did it get there? How do, we, how do we see him receiving this kind of zeal? What happened to make him desirous to fight this battle for the Lord? Perhaps he learned this from his mother. We don't know exactly who taught him about the Lord. His father didn't, clearly. Maybe he learned it from his grandfather at the end of his grandfather's life. Maybe there were those around him in the court who were faithful to trust in the Lord and point him to the truth. We don't know for sure who possibly pointed him to, uh, to the uh, Old Testament understanding of the Lord, but what we do know for certain is that he trusted the little information that he had and acted on it in such a way that he based all of his decisions on what would please God rather than what would please man. David, or Josiah, was not like his father. Rather, he was like his great-great-great-grandfather, David who 16 generations earlier served the Lord as a man after God's own heart. We see that as soon as Josiah was given any kind of actual authority, he did something that would have been immensely unpopular. He had his military crush the idols into powder. Let's back up a little bit to his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Hezekiah removed the altars and removed the idols from certain places, but he did not destroy them. Josiah goes one step further and says, no one, no one will ever set up these images again. He crushed them, not merely putting them away, but destroyed them, which would have been immensely unpopular with the public of his time. The people who go there regularly to worship would say, that is my God. What's going to happen to me if you destroy that altar? Isn't that deity going to come and crush me? Isn't he going to send locusts or famine on me? He eliminated them so that they would never resurface. And that when he turned an eye back to Jerusalem, the people wouldn't just sneak them back in and set them back up. Genuine zeal is always marked by radical repentance. It is not enough just to put something away, but must be cut off completely. In your life, are there areas where you are accepting sin? What are your idols? What are those things that you elevate in your heart to a place that only God deserves to be? In the Tuesday night uh, Bible studies, we've been going through the Psalms, and um, one of my favorite Psalms that we've gone through recently is Psalm 90, probably the first one that was ever written, written by Moses. And Psalm 90 talks a little bit in the middle about secret sin and how God knows all of your secret sin. Moses writes about how God not only knows and sees, but he is going to judge every secret sin of your heart. Your idols are probably very different than Judah. You're probably not setting up an altar and burning incense to them. Maybe you are. But I assume that for most of us, we are doing something much different than worshiping Baal or Molech or Dagon. We're probably disguising our sin in ways that we are hiding idols from others. We are hiding secret sins. Are we offended when our nation sacrifices children on the altar of convenience in what we call abortion? We talk about Manasseh killing his children on the altar of Molech, and we are offended at that, that he would take his children and burn them to a false god. What are we doing as a nation when we continually allow children to be torn from their mothers and destroyed. 
We rightfully recognize that Ammon was evil for thinking he could rule his kingdom without God's leadership or God's guidance. But are we not the same way when we ignore our Bibles and we remain prayerless and imagine that we are the king of our own lives? Your idols are probably hidden. They're probably simply things that are easy to cover up like lust or greed or pride. Or perhaps they're hiding in plain sight. Perhaps you've elevated things that are naturally good things, gifts of God, but you have elevated them to a place of worship like your children or your your job. The idols of this island that we live on are materialism and security and entertainment and comfort. What is it that you are idolizing above God? Ignoring God in prayer, ignoring Him in the Word, and pursuing whatever passing pleasure comes our way, those are all forms of practical atheism. It is a denial that God owns you and that God rules over your life, and every one of our lives drift away from God towards this kind of practical atheism. That's a common occurrence. It can literally happen overnight. You go to bed trusting the Lord, loving Christ, having a heart filled with worship, and you wake up the next morning as the center of your own universe, wanting whatever you can get from this world. I don't understand exactly how that happens other than to say, it's because our hearts are desperately wicked, and who can know it? Long before Josiah was born, it was prophesied that he would be born. It was promised that he would come and he would make great changes. 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 2 says, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. There was a promise. These altars are going to be destroyed, and these priests that are false priests are going to go with them. There was a promise that Josiah was going to come and to cleanse the nation. But there is one who is greater than Josiah who would also be filled with zeal. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. And in John chapter 2 verse 17, when Jesus drives out the people from the temple with a whip, the disciples recall this verse from Psalm 69, and they say, This must be the Messiah, because zeal for the house of the Lord consumes him. He loves God and has a passion for his glory that is unparalleled from anyone we have ever seen. The great truth is that Jesus has more zeal for you and for your holiness than you have ever had for him. And that is evident by his life, and that is evident by his death and resurrection. And you and I are called to live in light of that glory and respond to him with passion. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us, and he has displayed that love in ways far beyond what we can even comprehend. Our zeal should be to know him and to make him known. So we must desire to know God as he is, not as we have imagined him to be. Which leads us now to our second point, which is that reformation must be based on the scripture. Look again with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We'll begin in verse 8. Now in the 18th year of of his reign... When he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, 
and Masiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joah, has the recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. Their job is to go in and fix up the temple. Now jump down to verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Ad Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, Azaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. I don't think that we can overstate how much we sinfully take the scriptures for granted. We have legal and abundant access to the word of God, to God's personal decree that he has made about himself and about us. We have abundant access both in print and on every electronic device that we own. We have access to God's holy, eternal, divine self-revelation. In the days of Josiah, the word of God had literally been lost. It had been put on a shelf and covered up until someone happened to uncover it generations later. How often is our life a picture of this? You own a Bible, but it might as well be locked up in a closet and covered over with a bunch of materials in the temple. It only comes out on Sundays. But the reformation of the heart begins with a person who is confronted by the scripture. When Josiah heard the word of the Lord, it cut him to the heart and he tore his clothes to show his great need of repentance. This is not becoming of a king. This is not professional kingly behavior. This is not the way that royalty is supposed to act. But Josiah gave up all pretense and did not care what people thought of him. At that moment, the only thing that mattered to Josiah is that he and his nation were not living in accordance with God's word. Notice that Josiah had already made great strides to eliminate false teaching and idolatry in the land. He had already done incredible things for the Lord. Yet, when the word of God revealed that there were still areas of sin present, his response was to immediately view those things as cancerous elements that were to be removed at all cost. The book of James explains that there are two kinds of responses to the word of God. We read in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Perhaps you have grown in your walk with the Lord. Perhaps your past is like a battlefield strewn with the corpses of sins that you have put to death. But how do you respond to the word of God now? How are you responding to the word of God today? How soft is your heart to the rebuke of the Lord? When someone admonishes you with the word, do you rise up in anger? Do you rise up in self-justification or self-righteousness? Or do you drop to your knees immediately and repent? Genuine reformation begins on an individual level. It starts with you. It begins when you open up your Bible every day and you see the glorious, holy, spotless Lamb of God that we sang about this morning. Here's an old country church illustration that I'll share with you. I'm from the country, by the way. If you drive by a pasture, a pastor, pasture, I've been out of the country for too long, like a field, if you drive by a field, And you see in the summer, there are sheep in that field. The sheep look very white in contrast to all of the grass and and things that are surrounding them. But if you drive by those exact same sheep after a snowfall in the winter, they look brown and disgusting and filthy. But the sheep are not the things that have changed. It simply depends on what you are comparing them to. If you are not faithfully in the world, then you are naturally going to compare yourself to other people that surround you. And you look really good compared to your coworkers. I guarantee it. You're better than they are. Or the people that you see on television, you are nicer than they are. Or maybe you're even better than everyone else in this room. That's possible. Although that only applies to one person here. So I'll let you decide which one that is. But when we look at Christ... And we compare ourselves to the reality of what it means to be perfectly holy. Then we will see that there are still many areas of our lives which are shaped like the world. And that need to be molded and formed and reformed into the image of Christ. We don't know for certain what parts of the Torah Josiah read that day. Maybe it was everything from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. But I'm certain and I would fall in line with the majority of scholars on this, that at least they read the book of Deuteronomy because he mentions some of the curses that are listed there. It's interesting, earlier um, Jacob read some of the curses that are available there for you, and you might have been wondering, like, wow, especially if you're visiting, like, what church is this uh, that I'm hearing from? There's some pretty brutal things that he has to say. In fact, things get much, much darker than that. There are some of them that I, I cut out for time, and some of them I cut out because... It is intense and absolutely horrific, the level of devastation that God promised was coming to the people of Israel. He told them that when you go in, there are going to be attacks that come against you, and plagues, and pestilence, and starvation, to the point that you're going to eat your own children. These are promises that were made. This is coming for you. But perhaps the most terrifying of the curses come in the midst of all of these other things. We see in verse 21, Josiah says in uh, 2 Chronicles 34, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because of our fathers. They have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. Go inquire of God because this wrath is on us. It is over us. What wrath is he talking about? 
Well, many of the things that are terrible that Luke read about, many of the ones that I mentioned previously that he didn't talk about, but I think the worst of those promises comes in Deuteronomy 28:63. It says, And the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. As much as God has enjoyed giving you great blessings, he is going to enjoy sending curses. That is terrifying. That promise is horrific. And when Josiah heard those words, I am confident that it is in the midst of these things that caused him to tear his clothing and say, woe is me. I would like to take a moment to speak to those in the room who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that you are under a far more deadly curse than any of the things that are listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's worse than famine. It's worse than poverty. It's worse than starvation. It's worse than war. It's even worse than death. For those who are not saved, the Bible teaches that you are under the curse of God's eternal judgment, under God's eternal wrath, and that you are worthy of experiencing the full measure of his anger forever. And every person in this room deserves that wrath. I deserve it. Every one of you deserve it. So what is the difference between those who experience it, who receive that wrath, and those who do not, and those who receive mercy? The only difference is what you do with Jesus Christ in this life. If you believe in Jesus, believe that he died for your sin, and that he paid for it all at the cross, and if you believe that on the third day he rose again, and if you believe that he has taken all of your sin and given you all of his righteousness, you will be saved. It's not about what you do. It is about what he has done. So far today, I have talked a lot about different things that I am telling you we must do. I want you to understand the ultimate reality is that this is all of grace. This is all of God's doing, the work of Jesus at the cross, and the work of the Spirit to apply to our lives. But there are some in this room who need to experience the grace of God for the very first time today. There are others who need to shake off distraction and apathy. There are some in this room who are downcast and who have heavy hearts, but every last one of us needs reformation. And that kind of change begins by soaking your mind with the word of God. But it's not just getting it into your brain, which brings us now to point number three. Genuine reformation is the result of humility. Let's turn back to the story of Josiah and see what took place directly following the reading of the word in Chronicles 34, 22 through 31. It says, So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Hashra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the words of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. In verse 27, the Lord explains that the punishment is going to be withheld from Josiah because he had a tender heart and because he humbled himself before the Lord. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 tells us, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Even though Josiah was the king, he viewed himself to be a servant. He did not see himself as the sole authority over this land. He rightly realized that he was completely subject to the power and to the might and the dominion of the Lord. How do you know if somebody is truly humble? There's a lot of ways that you can know. There are some things about the heart you can never know. Someone might look humble from the outside, but inside they think that they are the greatest thing since individually wrapped cheese slices. People worry about their reputation. People are concerned about what other people think of them. One of the greatest ways to know if somebody is truly humble is if they are more concerned about what God thinks of them than what man thinks of them. Josiah could have been concerned about his approval ratings. He could have been concerned about how all the people would respond to his reforms. Rather than doing that, he simply trusted God and he humbled himself beneath the scripture. And he said, whatever you command me to do, even if it feels difficult or seems impossible, I will. That is humility. Humility is equivalent with obedience in terms of God. Are there things in the Bible that you like to intentionally avoid reading? I'm not talking about just genealogies that are challenging. I mean things that talk about your life and your sanctification. Are there things that you don't want to hear? Are there things that you pretend like the Lord has never said those things just so you can continue living however you want? Reformation begins with zeal for the glory of the Lord. And it begins with scripture and is formed and shaped by that. And it must also be accompanied by humble hearts. Which brings us now to our final point, the results of Reformation. Reformation has many results. I'm going to focus on just a couple quick things this morning. First of all, one thing that we see here is that Reformation results in right worship. 
Judah had worshipped Jehovah, but just as one among the pantheon of gods that they had set up for themselves. They had not worshipped him in ways that he had commanded them to worship. Specifically for them, they had not worshipped God exclusively. And they had not worshipped God according to the feasts and festivals that he had commanded. But when Josiah was filled with zeal for the glory of the Lord, and when he heard the word, and heard what they were supposed to be doing, and when he humbled his heart under that word, he was turned in such a way that he desired to worship God rightly. And the result for the nation was that Josiah instituted proper practices of public worship for the Passover specifically. Verses 28 and 29 reveal that it had been hundreds of years since the Passover had been worshipped correctly in a way that was pleasing to God. Without getting too deep into this issue, I simply want to say that the seeker-sensitive, attractional model of churches is not a faithful representation of what God has called us to do. It is not what God desires from us as Christians. The goal of such churches is to make everything as palatable as possible and as comfortable as possible. Why? Because they want everyone to feel like they should be able to come in and and sit and feel nothing but maybe a little excitement, a little encouragement and then go. But someone who is in sin, hearing the word of God, should be uncomfortable. For someone who does not believe, it is a terrible thing that they can attend a church and never be confronted with truth. The problem is simply this. By doing everything they can to accommodate the desires of the masses, many seeker-sensitive churches have worshipped the visitor rather than the creator of the universe. On an individual level, the word should shock your heart like a defibrillator. It should be something that when you hear that there is something God has commanded of us that is very different than the way that we are living, it should be like those paddles are being placed on your chest by a person in the ambulance. When I preach, I can't shake you up. I am not exciting. I am not, even, I am not funny. I am just an average communicator. But what you need to realize is that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And whether it's being preached from this pulpit by my mouth or anyone else's, or whether it's when you come to your own Bible in the morning or in the evening and you open the pages and you see that with your eyes, it should be like that shock of many volts bursting through your body and awakening you to the reality that I am not yet where I am called to be. It should awaken you to a passion, not just to be different, but to be different for God's glory. It should waken you to see that God is worthy of your life. And when the passion for Christ begins to surge in an individual, it is contagious to other believers. When you see someone that is excited for Christ, that shakes us and stirs us who are following him to be like-minded. Reformation begins with you, but it doesn't end with you. So I pray that the Lord would be pleased to raise up a generation of worshipers from this little local body that will worship him in spirit and in truth, and that the Lord would be pleased that whether this is coming from our gathering or many others, that this island would be filled with people who are lifting up the name of the Lord because he is worthy of that. Another result of genuine reformation is proper evangelism. Not only did Josiah institute proper forms of worship, 
He also instituted proper teaching to the people who had been far from God. In verses 28 and 29, we see that the people who had encountered God began to promote His glory to everyone else within their nation. It was not just a top-down mandate from the king, you must worship Jehovah. It was an excitement for the Lord Himself. It was a groundswell of faithful individuals who proclaimed the goodness and the majesty of our God. Now, there are some unnamed people, many of them, in fact, who were radically transformed by this. And there were many people who appeared to be changed. But as soon as Josiah was gone and the next king king arose, they went right back to their idolatry. But some, for some, this was a real, genuine, lasting reformation. There were some who were living during this period of time that we don't know their names, But the parents of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they would have been living at this time. They would have been operating under the revival of King Josiah. And it's no small coincidence that their children were able to grow up and be so knowledgeable and committed to God in the face of a foreign king. In fact, in the face of death itself. So I want to say to parents, evangelism begins in your home. Evangelism begins with your own children. It can be very easy as parents to feel like your children are distracting you from all of the important things of life. Please understand, God has given them to you as your responsibility to teach them in the ways of the Lord, to point them to Christ. They are not distracting you from your responsibilities. They are your responsibilities. And the first place that we are to evangelize is to our unsaved, unregenerate children. But it should go far beyond that, whether you have children or not, should not change whether or not you are evangelistic. If you love something, you talk about it. If something has meant something of value to you, you share that. If you were to win the lottery, I think people would talk about that. The reason is when we're excited or when we have received something that is a blessing, we share that information. You have received something far greater than money, far greater than possessions. You have received forgiveness for your sin and a relationship with the God of the universe. And if that doesn't excite you, there is something that needs to shake up in you. And there should be a desire, a passion, a fervency to tell everyone that you see and know about this Jesus who has redeemed you. And that's what happens when there is genuine reformation in an individual. When we begin to be shaped more into the image of Christ, we declare him both with our actions and our words that we want people to know who he is. Reformation results in faithful evangelism. And finally, I'll close with this. Genuine reformation always results in God getting maximum glory. The entire point of our lives is designed to be to give God much glory. As my friend Juan Kwok would say, I always kind of chuckle, he says this all the time. He says that the point of our lives, the purpose of our lives, is to make much of Jesus. And he's absolutely right. When your life is shaped by the word of God and you have a humble response to it, then your hope is not in what this world can offer you. Your aims are not built on what you can buy or gather or gain of the world's goods. Rather, when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, then you are laboring for eternal gains. Let's just say that at your job, your boss, I don't know what your job is, but let's just say you walk in and your boss hands you a broom and because you are uh, working for them, you have to do what he says and begin sweeping the floor, even though that's not what you're required to do normally. He just says, today I want you to sweep the floor. 
you can sweep that floor in such a way that God gets zero glory. Or you can sweep that floor, which seems so menial and simple and so frivolous in the scope of of the world. You can do that in such a way that God receives much glory. With a heart of humility, with a heart of obedience, with a heart of submission to earthly authorities, and with a heart of saying, God... I want you to be honored in all that I say and all that I do. Your actions have the capability of promoting God's reputation on this earth. What is God's glory? There's much to it. But a large percentage of what the Bible is talking about when it speaks about the glory of the Lord is the reputation of God, the name of God being declared amongst everyone. He is never going to change in how glorious he is. What does change is how much people recognize it. So when you are called to do something, whether it is by your boss or in your home or by the responsibilities of life, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And in doing such, in serving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even in the little things, what that looks like is people seeing you to see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So what I am telling you right now is very simply this. Reformation is not a purposeless act. It is not something that we simply talk about, or Reformation, Revival, whatever you might want to call it. What we're talking about is your sanctification on a personal level, your transformation into the image of Christ so that it might begin with you and spread out to the entire body of Christ. When Josiah found the word, he delighted in the God that those scriptures revealed. And it was that satisfaction in the Lord that caused Josiah to be such an influential, radical reformer. And I hope that God would be pleased to raise up, both from this room and far beyond it, people who would turn this world upside down with the gospel. That is something that we strive for, we hope for, and we pray for. But ultimately, that is something that, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Let's do so trusting that God will provide the increase. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is much that we have considered today, and there is much more about Josiah that we could see, even in terms of, personal and corporate revival and reformation. But God, I pray that this morning what we have learned would be effective in changing our lives. God, I pray for any hidden sin, for any idolatry that is in the heart of any individual, myself included, that you would cause us to see it, to recognize it, and then just like Josiah did, to crush it to powder that there would be no trace left, that there would be no open door for sin, that we would cut off all access to it. Lord, I pray that we would recognize ourselves as weak and needy and desperate, and that we would recognize ourselves not to be the king of our own life, but to be humble servants of the one who is the true king. God, I pray that you would please help each one of us today to respond with right worship and a fervor and a zeal for evangelism and that we would respond in such a way that we recognize every action of our life is designed to give you glory. Please, God, be pleased to change us and please be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.